0: Welcome those who are watching on live stream also we have been delayed getting started with this next semester we were supposed to start I think it was January 19th middle of January Um, and then we decided because so many people in our congregation had Omicron were sick that we just cut everything back for the entire month of January and we joked but in reality we're really starting the year the ministry year of 2022 In the month of February. So we only had our morning worship service throughout January. Now finally we can get back. We would have, last Wednesday, been back for this, but then we had snow issues. So with all that, here we are back to Master Plan for Life. So I want to remind you where we have been and uh, then where we are, where we're going. We're going to be picking up on page 115, 115 tonight. And you see up at the top there, and also on the upper right-hand corner, it says Doctrine of Salvation. So this is, this section, Doctrine of Salvation, is part of the first part of two of Master Plan for Life. So Master Plan for Life has part one, which is answering the question, who am I? And then when we're finished with part one, part two seeks to answer the question, why am I here? Now in order to answer that one question, who am I, part one, has five sections to it, and we've looked at four of the five. Those five sections are the doctrine of God, doctrine of Scripture, doctrine of humanity and sin, and the doctrine of Christ, those four. Now, having looked at who Christ is, who He is and what He has done, we're now in a position to look at the doctrine of salvation, what it is that Christ accomplished and how that's applied to us individually. Having looked at, in section 3, the doctrine of sin, we, we know our need for what we see in the doctrine of salvation. So it all kinds of go, kind of goes in a logical fashion. God, Scripture, humanity, sin, Christ, and now the doctrine of salvation. And when we are finished with this, this is a total of four lessons, 13 through 16. And then we have 12 lessons in part 2. So it's a total of 28, 16 in part 1, 12 in part 2 part two. Okay, everybody good? Doctrine of Salvation, page 115. The box then asks that question that we are seeking to answer throughout all of part one. Who am I? I am a sinner who is united to Christ and living obediently. That's what the doctrine of salvation results in. Us being united to Christ and living obediently. In previous studies, the backdrop has been laid. Now, without that backdrop, just jumping into the doctrine of salvation won't make a whole lot of sense. What do I need to be saved from? What do I need to be rescued from, which is what saved means, delivered from. If you haven't had the doctrine of of salvation or of, of humanity and sin, then that won't make, make any sense. And then also, who is it that says I need to be rescued? You know, uh, what what problem is it going to create if I'm not rescued? Well, that's going to be related to the doctrine of God because of the character of God, the fact that God is is holy, and God is righteous, as we saw back in the very first section. Because God is, in His very Constitution, righteous, then He must judge, He He is, He is therefore just and He must judge sin. So God must judge sin, we are sinners, we have to be rescued, we have to be saved. All of that is part of the backdrop to what we'll be looking at in this section. We know something, we say here, of who God is. He's the one who submits to no outside influence or constraint. He's the one who fills every crevice of existence for time and eternity. He wisely controls every aspect, circumstance, and living thing within His creation. He's all-knowing, all-wise, all-controlling master of creation. As to His abilities, we've seen that God has no limits. As to His character, no flaws. All of God's dealings are just and righteous for He's the very definition of holiness. We also know something about humanity. Humanity in their natural unsafe state is completely sinful. Every part of our being, body, mind, will is controlled by sin. This is where a dilemma comes in. How does an infinite and holy God pardon those who rebelled against Him and want nothing to do with Him by nature? Because God's righteous, He cannot ignore that. He must judge. But because God is gracious, He's compelled to provide mankind with a remedy. The only possible remedy was for someone sinless and guiltless to take upon himself the punishment of humanity's sin. And therefore, God the Son became a human being, died a sacrificial death as our substitute. He took upon himself the punishment that we deserve. But the question remains, How is that applied to me? How can I receive the benefits of Christ's death? And the answer is I have to be united with Christ. I have to be in Christ eternally so. The next four lessons are going to explore the conditions for our union with Christ and the benefits then that flow from that. Now on pages 117, 18, and 19, that's the homework for this week. And we call it homework, but it's a little bit of a misnomer because as you know by now, we don't grade it, we don't check it, we don't collect it. So you're on your own to do that. But I couldn't recommend highly enough that you actually avail yourself of that because it prepares you for what we're going to talk about in the following week and it also gives you something every day to be into the word in the word for and to look up and to answer all right page 120 then doctrine first lesson in the doctrine of salvation our salvation was made possible by the work of christ discussed in the last section on the doctrine of christ christ jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves namely lived a perfect life of righteousness, He died a perfect death to pay our penalty. But in order for His work to be applied to individuals, there are some conditions that God undertakes on our behalf, as well as some requirements He makes of us. These divine and human conditions are going to be discussed in this lesson. So you see we're saying that God does some things. and We'll see that first in order to apply what Christ has done to us individually and then we respond to those things that God has done. We have uh, requirements upon us as well. Both of those then we're going to see in this lesson. What God does, what God initiates, and how we are to respond to that. So first, what God does. And you see on page 120 there, salvation is all of grace. Every aspect of our union with Christ is the outworking of, Of the sovereign plan of God because unsaved people are as we saw back in section 3 totally sinful we are unable to pursue a relationship with God in any way our sinful nature will not allow us to do so so God must initiate salvation and he must give us the ability that we don't have naturally to repent and believe to repent and and trust Christ all right now that's a mouthful in that paragraph And you you really need to to think think about this. Going back to section three, the reason we lay master plan for life out in this logical fashion and it builds on itself is because, as I said earlier, if you just jump into the doctrine of salvation, then the fact that God is the one who has to initiate it won't make necessarily any sense. You figure, I can initiate it. I can say I want to have a relationship with God. But if you remember what we looked at back in section three on sin, You don't have that ability because you're not only, we are not only naturally when we come into the world totally depraved, total depravity, you've heard that that term. That means every part of the human person is affected, tainted by sin, totally depraved. Our mind, our will, our emotion are all affected by sin. That's what we mean by total sinfulness, total depravity. But that results in something else that people don't often get. Total depravity means total inability. Total depravity means you are totally incapacitated spiritually. That you got no hope. That you to use the language of scripture in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 are dead in trespasses and sins. You are dead spiritually. Colossians says the same thing, we are dead, Colossians chapter 2, we are dead spiritually before we come to Christ. So I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but this is the time to think about it. The doctrine of salvation, all right, I'm I'm in a world of hurt because of sin. I am totally depraved, which means I have this total inability because I am dead spiritually. And yet, I need this rescue. So how am I going to respond to this offer of a rescue if I'm dead spiritually? I mean, think of it this way. If you are floating in in the, uh, the river and you are dead and somebody throws you a lifeline, what can you do with that lifeline? Nothing. So here we're going to talk about the lifeline that Christ has provided, but then there's how do I get the ability to actually avail myself of it? if I have this, this total inability. Now what I'm, I'm talking about here, I'm belaboring because it's a gigantic deal. I mean, It really gets to the heart of the gospel. If you don't get this right, you will not get the gospel right. You will think that the gospel is something that you initiated and chose, if you don't get this right. So I'm gonna beat it for a while and if what I am talking about here is new to you, which it may well be, because unfortunately, not everyone is willing to teach what the Bible says about this. Because then naturally, we just think that we have free will. And as a matter of fact, our, our church is a Baptist church. We may believe Baptist doctrine, normal, orthodox Baptist doctrine but you know that there are Baptist churches that have the modifier on them that say, free will Baptist church, right? Well, see, there's a reason for that. Because because there's an emphasis upon you freely choosing as opposed to God being the one who chooses first. And the Bible teaches, and I'm therefore going to make the case, that it is God who chooses And if God doesn't do the choosing, you remain dead because you've got got no ability. You can't reach out and grab. So if you don't get total inability right, then you will come up with some false notion of free will. So spiritual free will is a false notion. Biblically, you're not free to do good outside of Christ. Did you know that? I mean, doesn't the Bible say that? And we saw it back in section 3 on the doctrine of sin. Romans chapter 3, there is no one who does good, not even one. Why does it say say that? Because nobody can. Why? Because you don't have free will to do good. You've got a will. You just always exercise it for bad. (laughs) You never do the right thing. Again, this is all outside of Christ. You never do the right thing for the right reason. Even when we do the right thing, Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6, Isaiah 64, 6, all our even righteous deeds are filthy rags before God. Even when I do the right thing, I haven't done the right thing for the glory of God. And so the Bible teaches that spiritual free will is a misnomer. You have a will, but it's not free to do good outside of Christ. And it's not until you come to Christ and He changes you spiritually, He makes you alive, ah, now you have the ability to do what you couldn't before. But you've got to get that right. And what we're going to talk about here at the beginning of this lesson is all based upon that truth. Okay? So, Brad, we're on page 120. 120. Yeah, you're welcome. And welcome. <laughs> so, second paragraph there. God gives life. And as a result, we are able to do that which in our depravity we were unable to do. The giving of life is known as regeneration. That's the term that means to impart life. Regeneration refers to the fact that God gives life to those whom He has chosen to be His children. Now let me stop there. He gives this life, God does that, but now to whom does He give it? Does God give life to everybody? I mean, spiritual life. Gives physical life to everybody. We know that. There would be no physical life if it were not for God the Creator and procreation and all of that. But does God give spiritual life to everybody? This says that God gives life, and He must, because we are dead. But then it says He does that to those whom He has chosen to be His children. We'll see that chosen part which can get somewhat mind-blowing, so just stay with me in, in a bit. So first, this idea of the giving of life, the meaning of regeneration. It is the act of God in which He makes the spiritually dead sinner spiritually alive. God grants spiritual life, which then enables us to do what we couldn't. Now you can repent. Now you can, you can trust Christ. So remember I said Ephesians 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That's verse 1. But then you see the ellipses there, the dots. You go over to verse 4. But in contrast to the fact that we were dead spiritually, because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, here's the phrase, made us alive. That's regeneration, giving spiritual life. So you were dead, but in contrast to what you were, in God's mercy, at a point in time, He made you alive, even when you were dead so the making of the the imparting of spiritual life is not because of something you did why because when he did it what were you you see what it says he made us alive when we were we were dead see and god is really going out of his way (laughs) to make sure you can take zero credit for any of this i mean like none you are just going down for the third time you're dead your lifeless body spiritually, and then He, you know, and you've got life preservers thrown, and you don't even have the ability to grab them, but God breathes life into your lifeless body, and now you're able to respond. Praise be, 1 Peter 1, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth, the giving of life, regeneration. 1 John chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, has been given this life. That's how it is they're able to believe. So that's what regeneration is, the imparting of life to those who are spiritually dead. Who does it? Well, it's the Holy Spirit who makes the dead sinner alive. You remember that famous encounter that Jesus had with the religious leader Nicodemus? And he comes to Nicodemus and he says to him, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And, you know, here's, here's Nicodemus. I mean, it's all about me being a good guy. It's all about me doing these good works. In Nicodemus' mind, he not only has the ability, but that ability has translated into accomplishment. I've actually done these things. And here's Jesus saying, no, no, you, it's not the stuff you do. And in fact, unless... Something is done to you, not what you do, something done to you, namely, you're born from above. That's what born again means, that you're born from above. You're given the spiritual life, and unless that happens, you will not see the kingdom of God. Well, he's, you remember that passage, Nicodemus is like, how can this happen? How can a man enter into his mother's womb? He's just totally lost. And Jesus says, notice, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It's in this context of you've got to be born again. You've got to be born from above. And then Jesus says, look, flesh gives birth to flesh, but if you're going to be, if you're going to be born from above, it's going to be by the Spirit. The Spirit gives birth to spirit and then when jesus uses the illustration of the wind it's the same word for spirit the greek word for spirit is pneuma so we uh, it pneuma means in the new testament the greek word it means spirit breath wind air and we use it similarly in in english Uh, you know with covid going around and everybody having all these respiratory problems you know people have had covid pneumonia if you have pneumonia means you've got a breathing, right? That comes from pneuma. So it's breath, wind, air, spirit. So the word for spirit is pneuma. The word for wind is also pneuma. So here Jesus uses this play on words to do this illustration. You've got to be born of the spirit, pneuma, and the pneuma blows wherever it pleases. The wind blows wherever it pleases. And what he's saying here is, Nobody controls it. Nobody controls the Spirit. Now, in this passage in John chapter 3, Jesus says, um, unless you are, in verse 5, we don't have it listed here, but in verse 5 he says, unless you were born of water and of the Spirit. You guys remember that? And so some people in church history have taken that to mean water means you unless you're baptized. They've taken that to mean baptism. Well, see, the problem is Jesus says next what we read here. And he's saying that this activity of the Spirit does what it pleases, it can't be controlled. Now follow me here. If spiritual life came at your baptism, then guess who would be controlling it? Who schedules the baptism? You do, right? We do. We get together, so we'll baptize you. You got baptized. We scheduled the baptism back in November. If that was the time when you get the Spirit, then we would have been controlling the process. And so you get baptized and the Spirit's obligated to then give you life at the time we scheduled. (laughs) So that's that's false on its face given what Jesus says here. His point is this is a God thing. This is what God does. And nobody and no thing and no particular spiritual rite, R-I-T-E, ritual, any of that controls it. Top of page 121. So as I've been saying, this passage draws an analogy between the blowing of the wind and the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. And Jesus' intent is to show that it's always the result of the Spirit's sovereign work. The Spirit decides. Sovereignly, no one controls, tells him what to do, is the idea. And it can neither be controlled or understood by humans. You know, I don't know how, for all of you, how long you've been in church, how many hymns you've been exposed to over the years, but I grew up my whole life in church, so lots of hymns. And there's this uh, one hymn that has these lyrics in it that says, I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin. Create, creating a belief in Jesus through His Word, creating faith in Him. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. It's quoting scripture. But it's also making that great point when it just says, I know not how the Spirit does that. That's the Spirit's work. I don't know the internal workings of how God does it, but the Bible says he does. And he does that, as we will see, in conjunction with the Word of God. And a person hears the Word of God and the Spirit is pleased to then move on those he has chosen to give them spiritual life and now they respond in ways that they couldn't before so that's what regeneration is how does it happen that's what c is on page 121 the means the way that it happens is as i said the spirit uses the word of god as the only means of producing spiritual life first peter again You have been born again, that is, born from above, regenerated, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So it's been shown that since by nature all are spiritually dead, God must give spiritual life if we're to be saved. Now God could have chosen to do one of three things with spiritually dead sinners. Please stay with it here. Save none, save all, save some. The Bible is clear that God gives life to some, but not all, sinners. How did God choose those to whom He would give life? On what basis? Now, we're going to keep reading here, but as we go, be careful how you're answering in your, in your mind, in your heart, because if you start going, well, how did God choose on what basis? And if you're starting to go, well, He had to have seen something, you know, about me that He didn't see about somebody else now you're on the wrong track. Because the whole reason that God takes these pains to say, it ain't about you, it's what I do sovereignly, it's nothing about you, it's about me, it's about my grace given to you when you were dead in your sins. So if you start to come up with anything that differentiates you from other people other than God's own choice, then you're going down the wrong wrong path. So God could have chosen to save nobody, He could have chosen to save everybody, or He could choose to save some people. And the Bible is clear. He gives life. He regenerates some, but not all. So how did He choose? On what basis? The Bible teaches God chose to give us life on the basis of this, His own purpose and pleasure. God sovereignly chose, that is the word elected, those to whom He would give life. And this then further demonstrates that our salvation is all of God's grace, since apart from His grace's choice, none would be saved. Now, some ask, and you may be asking it right now to yourself, why does He not save everyone? But in view of our sin and God's absolute holiness, really our question should be, we should be amazed that He saves anyone. And the answer is completely and only because of His grace. Now, You see on the rest of page 121 and on through page 122, we just got a whole bunch of verses here. I'm going to go through and read them all. And the reason I'm going to go through and read them all is because what has just been laid out to you, as I said earlier, is not something that people, many churches, are willing to teach. Because it's contrary to our natural disposition. Our natural disposition is... I do this, my free will. And God goes out of His way to say, "Uh uh-uh. Spiritually speaking, your free will always moves in one direction, and it's always bad. And unless I intervene, which thanks be to God, He does, but unless I intervene, you continue going that way. And God says, in the lives of my children, those that I, for my own purposes, have chosen, I intervene. That's contrary to the way we think. And therefore, we need to take some time to just look at what the Bible says. Because I want to make sure that you all get, even if you leave our live stream, if you leave this evening, and you say, wow, that's the first time I've heard that laid out like that. Like that. I need to really think about that. Okay, good. Do so, please. Please. Think about that. Pray about that. Ask questions about that. But I want to make sure as you do that, you know, forgive the grammar, this ain't Ken just making this up. This is what God says. So look at what He says, middle of page 121. This is Jesus in John chapter 6. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those He has given me, but raise them up at the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Now, you guys see that part that says, no one can come to me? And who comes to me? The ones that the Father has given me. I will lose none of those He has given me. So the Father has given to Jesus some people. And Jesus is dying for those people, and He will lose none of those people. But the way those people come is not by their own volition, but rather the Father draws them. No one can come. That's that inability piece I was talking about. No one can. No one has the ability. But God draws them. All right. Acts chapter 13, which we will see as we go through the book of Acts uh, into this year. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they honored the word of the Lord. And notice who believed, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. See, the reason people have faith, that's what believe is, the reason they put their faith in Christ is because God did something first. God appointed, God chose. God regenerates, and then we respond by believing. And if He doesn't choose and regenerate those He chooses, then you don't have the ability to believe. All who were appointed believed. Ephesians 1, He chose us before the creation of the world. He chose us in Him, and who would the in Him be? That's in Christ. He chose us in Christ. So the Father chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. So... (laughs) If it's before the creation of the world, then does it follow that it's not anything like He saw in you, it's not anything about you because you hadn't even been made yet? Before God creates the world, here you've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Father chose to give some to Him that is Christ, that Christ would come to the earth to die for. And this is before the world's even created. God's got this whole plan of salvation going. Wow. Wow. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just in case, you know, we think we try to make something within us the basis for why God does this, Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians 1, says, God chose the foolish, the weak, the lowly, the despised, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. And you see this no one can boast thing over and over again in the Bible, so that no one can boast. You see, God so set this up that He is absolutely central and the one who initiates so that no one can take any modicum of credit for the salvation He gives. The glory all goes to Him. And that's why there's then the so that no one can boast. In the famous Ephesians chapter 2 passage that says, It is by grace you have been saved through believing, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. I want to stop there. Take a look at that verse again now. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. So what is it in that sentence that's not from yourself? Take a close look at it. Well, the way the, way, um, the near demonstrative, that's what this is, the word this, is the, the closest referent? It's referring to the closest referent. What would that be? It would be faith. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, this faith, is not from yourselves. This faith is the gift of God. And it's not by anything you did. And why? Why is it that God is the one who gives it? It's the gift of God. It's not something that you generate yourself so that no one can boast. Hey, listen, when you, go to, when you stand before the Lord and the Lord says, why should I let you into heaven? Let me just recommend, and I'm making that up, but, but let's say He asks, you know, why should I get into heaven? Let me recommend that you don't say, well, because I. If, if you start with, well, because I, <laughs> you're off on the Okay, don't do that. Well, because I believed in you. And that's the way many of us would would answer, understandably. I mean, I understand that. Because I believed in Jesus. Don't start with because I. Say because you. Because you gave me life. Because you chose me before I was even created. You sought after me before I ever wanted you. Because you did all of this for me, Lord, and I belong to you. That's, that's how you do it. And that's what God keeps doing here. He keeps pointing you back to this is why you belong to me, not because of what you did, but because of what I did. 2 Thessalonians 2. God chose you, you see that again, chose, elected you as first fruits to be saved. He chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Romans chapter 9, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Wow. It does not depend on you. It depends on me. Keep going in case you're not quite convinced. (laughs) Top of page 122. Again, Ephesians Chapter 1, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. We saw that, but then it goes on to say, to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us, but why? In accordance with His pleasure and will. What was the basis? His pleasure and will. He decided it. Nothing about you. Later in that same chapter, verse 11 goes on to say, in Him... We were also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Why did He do it? Because it was His will. And then 2 Timothy chapter 1, He saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. Now it could go on, guys, but I'm just giving you that and I'm just reading it to you as best I can and I'm just explaining as clearly as I can, so that as you now have to try to get your mind around that as best you can, that you see that this is what God has said, and He's gone out of His way to say this and teach this, so that you are humbled, so that I'm completely humbled, and He's completely magnified, and He's the one who gets the glory. Now the relationship between God's free choice in salvation and the responsibility of the individual has vexed Christians for centuries. Ultimately, one must simply accept that the Bible teaches these things. Humbly thank God for His marvelous grace and salvation. And secondly, actively fulfill our responsibility to accept Christ, serve the Lord, evangelize the lost, and so on. The doctrine of election, that is God choosing, should never be an excuse for complacency. Rather, it should be cause for overflowing thanksgiving and praise that motivates us to serve the Savior with joy. All right, now that is that point was all under salvation is all of God's grace. And without God's initiating grace and Him doing the choosing and Him giving the life and all that, then we're not in a position to then respond. But God does that, and now we do actively respond. And that's what this second part is about. Mankind participates with God in the salvation that, he initi- that God initiates. I just want to start, stop for a second. What questions do you guys have? <laughs> if any. Any questions? So he doesn't call. See, he would know that you. if somebody rejects God, he, he won't be calling. Others. But I thought salvation was offered to everybody, apparently, but this says not. It's the so, there's the, it's, it's not the, the, the offer of salvation, but it's the reality of salvation. So the offer goes to everybody. Yeah, the offer. Like, you know, if, if this room had 40 people in it, and I give the gospel message, and now I say, well, as I do on Sunday mornings, and I say at the end, all right, now, you wanna, do you want to trust Christ? Then realize you're a sinner. Recognize Christ died for your sin. Repent. Receive Christ into your life. You know, I do that regularly, right? now when i'm looking at you know 200 and some people i don't know who god has chosen who he hasn't chosen right i have no way of knowing that so my job is to give the offer of salvation to everybody so yes the offer of salvation is supposed to go to everybody and it, and so i do but who's going to respond to it the one that god has given the there, you, ability to respond. there you go so the offer goes to everybody but but how many people would respond to that offer if God didn't do something, how many people would, according to the Bible? <laughs> Zero. So the offer, David, goes to everybody. And theologians call that the general call of the gospel. The general call goes to everybody. So when you preach the gospel, you preach it to everybody, and you say, respond. But then when people do respond, you know that that's because of this other category that... If if he, that theologians call the effectual call. There's the general call, but then there's the effectual call. It has the call of God that has effect upon the person. He breathed new life into them so that they responded. The reason they responded is because God initiated. And it's not because they were smarter, not because they were any of that, right? So the offer goes, but the reality is to those God has chosen. I have a hard time with uh, some parts of the Bible where He hardens people's hearts. That's basically making them so they can't respond. Yeah, yeah, That's tough. yeah. So, good, good question. And yeah, I should uh, boy for our live stream people. They're going, what was that question? Well, you know, what's the answering? <laughs> Just take my word for it. That was a really good answer to a question you didn't <laughs> you didn't hear. So the first question was. You know, does the offer of salvation of the gospel go to everybody? And the answer is it does, it should, but it only has effect upon those God has chosen. But now the second point that David is making is, hey, what about those passages in the Bible where God hardened Pharaoh's heart? That's where you get that, the hardening, Mm -hmm. is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And so here's God making it so that they won't choose, Right. Couple things about that. Remember, if we go back to section three of our material, how it is that Pharaoh and everybody else came to be in their sinful condition. How did everybody see? Pharaoh wasn't born into the world, nor is anyone else neutral. Everybody is born into the world hostile. Everybody. Me, you, Pharaoh. So, In order for God to harden somebody's heart, all He's got to do is let them go their own way. And that's actually the way I understand God hardening Pharaoh's heart. He just let him... You know, Pharaoh, you've heard that the the phrase that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He gave Pharaoh no restraints. Pharaoh could do whatever he wanted. And so he puts... Moses in front of Pharaoh, and and Moses says, let my people go. And here's Pharaoh, all-powerful Pharaoh. How's he going to respond to that? Right? And that's God hardening his heart. Now, it doesn't mean God moved on his heart so that you had a compliant, soft heart, and God now made it a heart of stone. No. It's a sinful heart from second one of his conception. And now God has put him in circumstances so that the heart he already has is manifest. That's why when you read that story about Pharaoh, it says, yes, God hardened his heart, and that's the way I understand God hardens, by just putting people in circumstances where what they already are shows up. But that passage also says, that whole narrative says, at times, Pharaoh hardened his heart. So it'll say God hardened his heart, and it'll say Pharaoh hardened his heart, his own heart. So you've got that dynamic going on of Pharaoh the sinner, And God the sovereign putting the sinner in a situation to simply reveal what he is, to kind of hang him with his own rope, so to speak. God didn't make him something that he wasn't. God simply revealed what he already was. And that's what happens with every sinful person. Judas Iscariot. Think about Judas. I mean, Judas had been prophesied that there would be a betrayer betrayer going back to the Old Testament. And this one who would would sell out the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. So here comes Judas, and you could say, well, wasn't Judas set up? No, Judas came in like Pharaoh did. But here's here's the humbling part. Judas came into the world like Pharaoh did. He came into the world like I did, like you did. You see, you could have been Pharaoh. You could have been Judas. If God puts, it leaves you to your own devices and doesn't intervene on your naturally sinful heart, then you go your own way, and Lord knows where that leads. You know, we use it as a trite statement, but for the grace of God, so go I. Hey, that ain't, that ain't trite, that's real. But for the grace of God in my life, where would I be? I'm standing here teaching you the Bible, not because I'm good, because God was good to me. And that's the way we got to look at it. I'm Pharaoh. I'm Judas. I'm I'm the guy shooting up on the street corner. That's all me if God doesn't intervene. That's you if God doesn't intervene. Now, that's what makes Christians humble people. And then that's what makes Christians look at other people and say, I don't look down on you. And I offer the Word of God to you. I offer the Gospel to you. And it's my hope and my prayer that God will mercifully move on your heart like He did mine. One last illustration. Charles Spurgeon, you guys heard that name? In the 1800s, London, Metropolitan Tabernacle. He was a Baptist preacher. But uh, he taught all the stuff I'm talking about here because he taught the Bible. And some a lady came to one time and she said, well, you know, if you believe it's only those that God has chosen who will ultimately be saved, then why don't you just preach to those people? And Spurgeon responded and said, point them out to me and I will. <laughs> it's like, right? He doesn't know. So it kind of goes back to your original question about, I thought the general call, yeah, that's the reason it's got to be general because I don't have a clue. Spurgeon didn't have a clue. Paul didn't have a clue. All he knows is that everybody has to have this happen. If they're going to go to heaven, you must be born again. And the way that happens is through the word of God and the gospel. And so my job is to give that and see God do his work. Great questions. Anybody else? All right. Look, middle of page 122, mankind participates with God in salvation. Union with Christ is not simply awarded certain things must be accomplished before one is united with Christ. The human conditions of union with Christ are those aspects in which the sinner participates. While the Bible teaches that these are empowered and initiated by God, each person plays an active and necessary role in expressing both repentance and belief, repentance and faith. What is repentance? Well, here's what it's not. It's not simply sorrow for sin. Judas was sorry, but Judas was not repentant. And it's not The sacrament of penance, as it's taught in Roman Catholicism, it's you know, that involves, as we say here, confession to a priest, pronouncement of absolution, and assignment of works to do or prayers to say. It assumes that Christ's atonement was not sufficient, teaches that salvation involves the sinner's good works. It's completely unbiblical. So, what is it? It's a change of mind regarding God, regarding ourselves, sin, and righteousness. It literally means the term repentance does to change one's mind. It's the Greek term metanoia, meta change, nous is is mind, change the mind. It's the change of mind away from sin and self to God and righteousness. This change involves more than one's opinion. It's a commitment to God to go in a new direction. And that's why I define repentance as a change of mind that leads to a change of life, leads to a change of direction. So it involves a change of mind regarding sin and regarding God. First, regarding sin. It requires knowledge of our sin we need to be told we are sinners it requires genuine sorrow for our sin rejection of that sin and then a desire to seek god's forgiveness god's pardon now some people teach that repentance is simply a change of mind regarding christ but any definition of biblical repentance that leaves out the idea of conscious and active rejection of sin repenting from sin is seriously wrong so we Repent, we change our mind regarding sin. Sin is now this horrible thing that separates me from God. And when God moves upon the heart and mind of an individual, they immediately then see that sin has to be remedied. And they want that remedy. Secondly, it involves a change of mind regarding God. Acts chapter 20, Paul says, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Prior to salvation, each person pursues sin, rejects God. Repentance is that act which reverses our allegiances. In repentance, we decide to reject sin and pursue God in His ways. So you guys notice then on Sundays when I just do that real quick. for realize you're a sinner, recognize Christ died for your sin, but but we have the third thing there on purpose, repent of your sin. And then I almost always say this, repent means, God, I'm going to go your way, not my way. It's just me in one line trying to explain what we said here, okay? Sin is a big deal, I I no longer want that, I want what you want, God, and so I've changed my mind and I want to go in a different direction, I'm going to go your way, not my way. All right. So where does this repentance come from, though? Well, remember, you're dead, you can't do it, and so God has to give the ability to do it. It doesn't originate, then, in us. An unsaved person's intellect and will are so fully rebellious that they cannot pursue or obey God in any way. Romans chapter 8 says, Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the sinful nature desires. The mind governed by the sinful nature is hostile to God and does not submit. So therefore, it clearly can't come from us. And while historical facts, bottom of page 123, and logic are involved in repentance, they cannot produce it. Repentance is the gift of God, is the gift of God. Because the totally depraved sinner is incapable of repenting, God has to give the ability. And so it doesn't originate with us. it originates with God. God grants repentance. So he makes you spiritually alive, that then gives you the ability to believe. And everybody that he makes alive, guess what they do? They repent. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6, all of those that the Father has given me will what? Will come to me. So every one that God has decided, I'm going to make that one alive, when they hear the gospel, every one of those then does respond in repentance and in, middle of page 124, in faith, in belief. So rejecting sin, embracing God, placing your belief in Christ. Now in order to do that, it requires that you know who Christ is, that you place your trust in Christ for your salvation, and that you commit to Him your life. Under number three there, you see where it says true saving faith involves a commitment to follow Christ in obedience. It's a commitment to Christ as both the sin bearer, that is our Savior, and our Master, the Lord. Sometimes you will hear people teach, hey, look, you are saved, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, Acts chapter 16 and verse 31. And they will quote that, and they will say, well, then that means you simply have to believe in Jesus, but you don't commit to Jesus. You don't have to commit to Jesus. That's what they say. Well, here's the problem with that. It doesn't say in Acts chapter 16 and verse 31. It doesn't say, um, believe in Jesus, and you will be saved. It doesn't say that. It says believe in the Lord Jesus Christ (laughs) and you will be saved. And God's not wasting any words here, okay? Jesus is his human name, as you know, from Matthew chapter 1. The angel says to Joseph, you shall give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And the name Jesus means God saves. So that's why he's called Jesus, because he's the Savior. But He's not just Jesus, He's the Lord Jesus. What's the Lord peace mean? That means the Master. And that's why when we present people in the gospel, when we present people with the gospel, we present not just Jesus, we present the Lord Jesus. We present the Master and the Savior to them. And we say, He rescues you, He saves you, yes, but He is your Lord before whom you bow. And you now are committed to follow Him. And again, that's why I say in repentance, God, I'm going to go your way and not go my way. So saving faith re- requires this commitment. Now, who is the one we have this faith in? Who's the object of this belief? In order to become united with Christ, one must have faith in the person and work of Christ Jesus. Because our knowledge of Christ is based only upon the Scriptures, faith in their accuracy is also involved. All right, do you see what that says our knowledge of Christ is based only on the Scriptures, so our belief in the accuracy of the scriptures is also involved so can somebody say I believe in Jesus but I don't believe in the Bible well that raises a question well how do you know anything about Jesus where'd you get your stuff about Jesus oh it came from the Bible well how do you know the Bible's right then so when God does this work upon your heart your heart is knitted to God's word. It resonates with you. So that the Holy Spirit can now illumine your mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 14 and 15. So that's what we mean there with that line. I quoted for you Acts 16:31, "Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved." This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Top of page 125, according to scripture, one must understand the message of Christ and trust Him as Savior and Master, or there is no salvation. Now, how do I get this saving faith? Where does it come from? It's the same as repentance. I don't generate it. doesn't come from me. God is the one who gives the ability and gives the faith. So it does not originate in the individual. does not originate in historical facts. So did you guys know this? So that someone can know the facts of... The gospel and not be saved. Am I right about that? Mm-hmm. Someone could know that there was a guy named Jesus. And they could believe there was a guy named Jesus. There could be, they, they, they could say, I believe there's a guy named Jesus who was killed, was crucified, he died on the cross, and still not be saved. Why? Because it's not historical facts. It's, it's believing in, yes, the facts that then produce the, the purpose for those facts. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Christ died, and do you remember what the next phrase is? Christ died for our sins. So you can say Christ died all day long, but the Christian believes Christ died for something, namely for our sins. And so it's not just believing the facts that Jesus died, that Jesus lived, that Jesus was born, that He taught, that He healed, and all of those, those things. Saving faith also does not originate in human logic. John chapter 1, children of God are born not of human decision, but they're rather born of God. As we saw, it does not depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Since in the wisdom of the world, through its wisdom, uh, since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him. So it can't come through us, coming from us and reasoning our way upward. It's got to be God coming to us and doing what we couldn't do for ourselves and like repentance saving faith originates with God saving faith bottom of page 125 involves a knowledge of the facts yes regarding the gospel and the use of logic to understand those facts but it's not produced by either just like repentance saving faith is a gift of God God graciously gives the sinner new life and the ability to see his need and to trust in Christ So it originates with God, and in giving this faith, then God gives spiritual life. That is regeneration. It's the gift of God which enables us to repent and believe, as we've already seen. And then God gives saving faith. As we saw from Ephesians chapter 2, middle of that page, under point B, where it says, "...for it is by grace you have been saved through faith." And this not from yourselves, it's a gift of God. Notice what it's saying. The structure of the Greek sentence in Ephesians 2.8 indicates that the term translated gift refers to the whole process of salvation and certainly faith is one of those elements. It's obvious then that faith is something that God must give. All right. Lastly, note. When we talk about conversion, you know, we use a lot of terms for being united with Christ, having a relationship with God. So you could say it a lot of ways. Are you united with Christ? Do you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? I say it that way sometimes. Are you saved? Rescued? Delivered? Are you a Christian? A lot of ways to, to say this. But when we say it, when we use those terms, we should, all of those should mean the same thing. This, conversion. So another way to put it is, have you been converted? Have you been converted? You know from where you were and what you were to now something else so conversion is this it's an umbrella term for the simultaneous acts of faith and repentance and it indicates the presence of both so at the same time when however you were saved and you know hopefully you have some remembrance of that how you were saved Um, if not you just know that I was this and now I'm this that's conversion. For me, I'm 19. I think I've told you guys this. I'm reading the Bible in my bed. I've grown up in church. I have lots of the Bible memorized at that point because I went to a Christian school, and they had us memorizing whole books of the Bible. And like Sunday school, they had us memorizing. We had contests, and all kinds of stuff. So I've got a whole you know, bunch of the Bible memorized. But I'm laying in my bed reading the Bible, and I come to Ephesians 2.8. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And I read that, and the effectual call happens. God called me right then. Reading that verse. No preacher. No Billy Graham walked the aisle, which is all fine. I mean, that's but I'm just saying it happens in different ways. For me, it happened with the Bible open, reading it. And God gives me life. And all of a sudden, I go, oh, that's what it is. It's not not anything I do. It's what He's done. And I believe that faith, gift from God, so that I I can never boast. So my life is changed at that point, and in that moment... Everything changes. I believe in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. I believe that my life needs to go in His direction, not my direction. That's repentance. And when I prayed in my bed, I didn't use the word repent, but I repented. Because I said, Lord, I'm giving my life to You. I'm going to go Your way, not my way. And I believe that you died for my sin. And both of those were an expression of faith and repentance. And taken together, that's conversion. I'm now moving in a new direction. So that's what we say in this paragraph. It's an umbrella term for the simultaneous acts at the same time of believing and repenting it indicates the presence of both. Conversion, then, is the decision one makes which sets him in a new direction. This turned position results in a turned direction in life. Thus, one who has been converted is turned toward God in a life of obedience, and he actively pursues both. Acts chapter 14. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Be converted. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's conversion. That's salvation. Okay? So that's the first lesson in the doctrine of salvation. Now, in the subsequent lessons, we're going to see some of the things that now accrue to the person that God gives the spiritual life to and who in turn expresses faith and repentance. And some of those things are justification, uh, adoption, eternal security, uh, assurance, those kinds of things. We're going to see those in the weeks ahead, okay? All right. What time is it, timekeeper? But I don't, but I don't like to brag, but that would be exactly one hour. Thank you, guys.